Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is just a real wonderful encouragement to know that you're holding us fast, that our assurance of salvation is not based upon our goodness and our faithfulness, but it's based upon yours. It's based upon the work that Christ has carried out. It's based upon his complete and full obedience to you, Father. It's based upon you sending him. Our eyes are open to see it and understand it by the, the sending of your spirit. And so we're reminded that our salvation is given to the rebellious sinner. And as we talk about the sinfulness of sin today, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand, give us eyes to see what sin really is in your sight. And thus by seeing it that way, we may see what it is that you have overcome and what you have done for us in Christ. Against the deepest and darkest backdrop, the true light shines the brightest. And so I pray today, Lord, that Christ and his work, his person, would shine so brightly as he beams out of Scripture. You imprint upon our hearts, upon our minds, the truthfulness and the reality of what you've done for us in Christ and the preciousness of the gospel. So we ask these things, Lord, for you to do because it's a work that only you can. If it's to be truly done, we, we need your hand to be moving for you to be at work today, Lord. So please, we pray for you to work. We entrust all of this to you. We ask that your will would be done. And we pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, thank you, for team, for leading us in song today to worship as our time of worship continues on. At least that's what I hope and pray that it is. It's a time of continued worship as we look at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The newsletter said 12 through 14. That was my bad. It was a typo in me getting my information to my wife for the newsletter late. I included an extra verse. So we're going to be in 12 and 13 today. Um, to me, this is the most difficult section of Romans to preach through. It is like one difficult text after one difficult text. And part of the reason why is because Paul is, by God's providence and leading, building a case, building an argument. And if you're just, if you're familiar with Romans, you know what he's doing. If you're not familiar with Romans, it may seem like, okay, there's some stuff that like you should be saying here, Paul, and there's some stuff that you're kind of leaving out, some important stuff. really seems like you're, you're magnifying this law thing and that someone can be saved by their obedience to the law. And um, he's getting to some, some real big kind of clarifying statements, but we're just, we're not there yet. Um, but we'll get there by God's grace. I kind of look at the book of Romans like a painting. And when I think of painting, the first artist that pops into my mind is like the famous Bob Ross. And 
you and I, I remember watching him as a kid and doing his his show and his deal and thinking like you just know if you've seen it before you know that it's going to turn out to be a masterpiece at the end you're going to be blown away there's all this all these layers and all this depth and he's just talking away doing his thing dotting around on the the, the canvas but there's some parts of the painting where you're going, okay, today, this time, certainly he's going to blow it because it doesn't look like anything Bob Ross-like or recognizable right now. But he always manages, to, even in the ugliest and kind of like you're looking at the painting going, what is he doing? Um, it ends up through his work coming out and the end is always this beautiful painting and this masterpiece. And it's kind of like the book of Romans. Like by the time you get to the end, you're like, this is an incredible masterpiece. There's parts of it, though, along the way you're going like, what is, what's he doing? What's going on? And to me, I feel like we're kind of in one of those parts in Romans where you, you can be scratching your head going, what is, what is Paul doing? What is he teaching? And my encouragement to you is just wait until the end. Like, the masterpiece, we, we will finish it um, by God's grace. Um, but we're getting into some parts here where Paul is building his argument, it's, I, I, and today, in particular, I, I want us to imagine, I think, that, I think this is helpful, imagine that to, what today's passage is doing is it's taking place within a courtroom scene, and that there are things that Paul is going to mention for the first time in the book of Romans that he hasn't mentioned yet, some specific words that are absolutely huge for the rest of the book of Romans. Um, in, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And, um, and he's helping paint the picture of what it is, that this argument that he's building. Um, I've not been, I've only been like in a courtroom a couple times. I've seen plenty of like those shows where things take place in a courtroom. I'm not, I'm not talking about like Judge Judy and stuff like that. I'm talking about like some actual like real shows. And one of the things that always impresses me is the way that the prosecution can ask questions. They don't just come out like with the, the big hammer right at the beginning. They're asking questions to draw out like, um, okay, how did you get here? How did you get here? How did you get here? And those questions at times seem to be kind of like inconsequential to what it is that's actually going on. But they're building their case and, there's, and they're connecting dots. Boom, 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 boom. By the time you get to the end, you're going, okay, so you said yes to this, 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 and this. So then this, boom, drop the hammer. This must be true. And the person on the stand's like, oh. You got me. And that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's building a case. He's asking all these little questions. He's moving the conversation along. And then he's going to come to some real profound clarifying statements. Um, but 12 and 13, he's going to introduce some of these really important words that for the rest of the book of Romans are going to be absolutely foundational to what it is that he's going to be teaching through. So just by way of reca um, recap real quickly, getting us caught up to where we are. Um, Paul is moving closer to his real clear indictment that he's making towards the Jewish people that are a part of that congregation. He hasn't come out yet clearly and said it, but he's, he's making his way there through some of these arguments. He's using this courtroom scene today to do it. And we've seen already that God is, what Paul has already taught, that God has revealed himself partially, though convincingly, through, through nature to all mankind, but all are found guilty of not worshiping him and are under judgment. And so how do you escape judgment? And what he said is perfect obedience is what is required to escape judgment. 
The issue is, is that no one can do that, and thus the gospel becomes the good news. And that's why early on in 1, 16 and 17, he, he's mentioned and highlighted the importance of the gospel. He tells us that there is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, so that the righteous may live by faith. He makes this profoundly huge theological truth statement and then he kind of leaves it and tucks it away and goes off on this this escapade of the sinfulness of mankind the pervasive depravity of all mankind and he's continuing that argument but we're holding on to this like this gospel nugget truth that there's salvation not found anywhere else other than in christ and then in the gospel that is preached and so he's talking so he's now he's, he's laying this indictment against all of creation, humanity, all have sinned, all are under God's judgment, all have broken the law, but he's also making his way particularly to address the Jews, those who had the law, the Mosaic law, and what did they do with it? And how did having that law work out for you guys? And so he's moving that direction. And what we see today in 12 and 13 is, is a lot of what it is that he's already said, but reinforced with some really... Um, some, heavy, some heavy wording that he uses for the first time. So let's go ahead and read. Um, I'm actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 6, because I think it's helpful as we move into 12 and 13, and then we will uh, work our way through it together this morning. He, being God, verse 6, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's really bad news. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so you kind of see, you're picking up, I hope, that you're picking up on the hint when he says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And he's, t and he's making his way towards this indictment towards Israel and them having the Mosaic law and yet only being hearers of it, not doers, um, and applying it to their lives. And as I said earlier, this is a courtroom scene. A lot of the wording that Paul uses here are legal terms. The word sin is a legal term. Obviously, the word law is a legal term. Justified, and even if you go down the extension um, I was thinking I was going to get through verse 16 today, but in my preparation this week, it came to me very clearly, you're not getting out of verse 13, brother. But even these two terms in verse 15, excuse me, these conflicting thoughts, either accuse or even excuse, literally prosecute or defend them. So Paul is making very clear, he's got this courtroom scene being set up. Sin is the crime. Law is the standard, righteousness is the innocence, and being justified is our freedom. And he's using a lot of these words for the first time. Sin, it's the first time in the book of Romans he's used the word sin yet. 
he's talked about what sin is, but now he uses the word. He uses, for the first time in the book of uh, Romans, the word law. He uses, for the first time in the book of Romans, the word justified. And the word righteous has been used, but only one time previously, and it was actually referring to God's righteousness. And so he's bringing into convergence these ideas of what it is that actually has happened, what it is that mankind does, and how it is um, a transgression against the law or against the Lord and what it is that mankind has done. He says in verse 12, for all who have sinned. It's unfortunate for us that we read that verse, for all who have sinned, without the law of God, and we just breeze right over that word sin. It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of an important word. It's the first time he uses it in the book of Romans, and he's going to use it a lot going forward. He uses the word law a lot, and uses the, this idea of being justified a lot. And what he's doing here is, for the first time, he's bringing them all together because they're all related with one another. And so I want to take a little bit of time this morning to look at these terms. Um, the word sin first is for all who have sinned. Um, it's, like I said, it's unfortunate that we pass over that word so easily, so familiar with sin we are, that we don't even stop to really think about what sin is. But it's a major topic that Paul will wrestle with in the rest of the book. A sin can be used to define what he has said already in verses 8 and 9. He hasn't used the word, but certainly if we go back to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. We could say that those are sinful things that those people are doing there. And certainly you could talk about what he mentioned in chapter 1, as being sinful as well, though he doesn't use the word there, but he's describing the actions of sin. He's describing without using the word what it is and how it actually takes place and the things that people do that are sinful, but even if he doesn't use the word sin there. And so in chapter 1, when he talks about verse 18, the unrighteousness of men, the unrighteousness of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's talking about sin. Verse 21, not honoring God or giving thanks to God, that is sin. Verse 23, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. There again is sin. And then, of course, when he goes on to verse 29, 26 through 27 talking about the pervasiveness and the problem of homosexuality as being certainly sinful and then 28 29 30 and 31 and he goes on a list of things that are sinful and he does this thing in verse 12 of chapter 2 where he just incorporates it all under this term and this heading of sin you've done all these things you know what all these things are they're sinful things but I'm going I'm to I'm properly clarify and identify it now and define it for what it is as being sinful. And for us, what I would hope is that this, when he uses this word sin here, it would, it would have this meteoric impact upon us because that is what sin is. 
He's not talking about just the things that people are doing. Certainly sin, are, sin is, can be defined as the things that we do, but it is so much worse than that. When he says that, he, he, he's talked about all these things. They've done this, they've done this, and oh, by the way, you, oh man, who do these things yourself, yet you cast judgment on others. Don't you know that God's judgment's going to come on you because you, the judge, do the same things? Like in 2, 1 through 5, this stuff, I need you to know what, we, what it is and what we call it. And we call it sin. And this should, this should hit like a linebacker. Because the impact and the weight of what sin is, is, is incredible. I was looking at it earlier this week. I opened up my theological dictionary of the New Testament. And I'm thinking, okay, how much... What does this say about sin? 50 pages dedicated to one word to try and describe the the depth of it and the breadth and the wickedness of what sin is. I'm going to do my best to try and condense the 50 pages that I read into a few minutes of trying to give you a clear picture of what it is that sin is and what Paul is saying. I need you to understand what it is that has happened to mankind. And when I use the word sin, you need to take all of this information that you know about sin and import it into this one three-letter word. And I want you to be absolutely undone by it because I want you to see what is demanded of you, and I want you to see what it is that you have done, not just done, but who you are. And against that, the life that is presented to us in Christ beams forth with brilliant magnificence. Because when you see and you understand sin, to have a Savior is like, it's the, ba- it's the best. So sin, it's a legal term of rebellion, which assumes moral norms being rebelled against and God's own character rejected. It's not only that, it's a moral uncleanness, a hatred and hostility toward God. It's demonic in character. It's a self-assertion over God and it includes all men. It's It's an apostasy against God. It's breaking away from the boundaries that God gave in which all human life ought to move forward. It doesn't just include our actions, but it's a process of the soul which makes access to God impossible because it creates a mind that is incapable of comprehending and then for dealing with God as it incurs guilt upon us. Sin is not only doing wrong, but it's also the failure to do good and to do what's right. Sin is not just the thing that we do. It affects us. It creates a state in which we live in. It is who we are as sinners. Puritan Richard A. Lean said, Sin is the insurrection, rebellion of the heart against God. It turns from him and turns against him and runs over to the camp of the enemy and there takes up arms against him. Sin is not just what we do. Sin is an active state of rebellion against what God has decreed to be 
right and good. And what he has decreed to be right and good is actually, a, actually an expression of his own character. And it's not just a rejection and a rebellion of his own character of what's right and good. It's a hostility and it's a hatred of him. It's a hatred of purity and goodness, holiness and majesty. It's a hatred of his hatred towards sin. It is, it's all-encompassing, and, and the worst, maybe, perhaps, the worst part of it is that it creates a state in which we live and brings about the effects of ongoing hatred towards God. I'm telling you, sin is not, it, it does not change directions unless divine intervention comes. Sin is not something that we just struggle with. It's not our foils and our hang-ups and the mistakes that we make. Sin is actual, active hatred and rebellion towards God. We don't want to change. We don't want God. John 3, 18 through 21 reminded of that, us of that this morning. And had it not been for the grace of God intervening in the sinner's life, we would not be changed. We would not desire change. The light has come and mankind has rejected the light, hated the light. Why? Because mankind loves darkness rather than the light. That's what sin does. And Paul makes it very, very clear that those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Everybody is in trouble. He brings up this term law because sin is a legal term. All those who have sinned without the law in a, in a, in a veiled way to refer to the Mosaic law that God gave to the people of Israel, which was just actually further like clarifying of what mankind already knew to be true about God in the natural law, which we already covered in Romans chapter 1. But all that, make no mistake about it, it doesn't matter if you had the law or you didn't have the law, everybody has sinned. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, he'll say it very clearly later on, right, in Romans chapter Three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one of those like real clear, clarifying statements. What he's doing right here, he's saying the same thing, only he's saying it in a different way because he's still building the argument that everybody is a lawbreaker and because you are a lawbreaker, you are a sinner. And it doesn't matter if you had the Mosaic law or you didn't have the Mosaic law. The Jews can't say, well, we had the law and we were hearers of it, so we're good. God showed us favor. Paul will very clearly say in chapter, in verse 13, no. It is not the hearers, but the doers. Did you do? Always. Personally, perpetually, and perfectly. No. What does that mean for you? Greeks can't say, the Gentiles can't say, we didn't have the law. God's going to say, you had what was necessary to know about me from creation. Did you at least do that? 
personally, perpetually, and perfectly? No. You're in trouble too. For everybody has sinned. If he had the law, he didn't have the law. Everybody has broken. Everyone has sinned and rebelliously turned against the one that created them and that lived in enmity and hatred against him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 would say, sin is lawlessness. Sin is specifically defined as lawlessness and going against God's law. And that's why when we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, those who came to him and said, Lord, Lord, did we do all these things in your name? His response to them is, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You're still under the law. You are still actively rebellious and sinning against me. We know that Paul is mentioning here, it's a veiled way of talking about the Mosaic law. Jesus is, excuse me, um, the Jews have already been mentioned three times in the book of Romans. And he's moving that direction as we will see as we get late deeper into chapter 2. But his point being here is that they who did not have, those who sinned without the law will perish without the law. Perish is a word of, of eternal punishment. They didn't have it, but they're still held accountable because they sinned against God. They've transgressed his character, his holiness, what they knew to be true about him through the natural law, through creation and against their conscience. And not just them, but the Jews who had sinned under the law, those who had the, more than the natural law, but the Mosaic law will be judged by the law. The standard of God's Mosaic covenant will be imposed upon them. Did you keep it? Parts of it. See how that's going to go. We've already talked about how God's standard of law keeping is not just parts but perfection. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 7. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. If you have a life that's marked by perfect enduring of doing good, of honor and immortality, you can have eternal life. And we talked about how the fact that that is no man can say that other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7 is a picture of Christ. He's the only one that has ever been good. And he's the one that has um, always, by patience and well-doing, sought for glory, honor, and immortality. And so Paul is again reminding people of their guilt under the law. We move through and we see in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and those who have sinned under law will be judged by the law. And in this way, he's reiterating what it is that he said in verses 6 through 11 earlier, and that death is the penalty for those who don't keep the law perfectly. And then this is again made even more clear in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He's talked about what sin, he's mentioned the word sin. He's, we've seen what, a, what that word means and what it carries with it. 
Sin is a transgression against the law of God, which is a transgression against his own perfect, righteous, and holy character. And then he uses, he, he brings in this term, justified. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous or innocent, pure, but the doers of the law who will be declared justified, not guilty. See, for the first time, what he does is he connects the idea of righteousness and justification in chapter 2, verse 13. And if you, again, if you know anything about Romans, these two things are intimately tied and woven together. It is only the righteous who are justified. It's only the pure and the innocent who are not guilty. I was talking to you last night. We were talking about this together as a family. And I said, it, it, I was talking to Abigail, and I said, if you're brought into a court and they accuse you of doing a crime and you know you didn't do the crime, do you have to be worried about being declared innocent and being proven guilty? She's like, no. Why? Because I didn't do it. Exactly. Paul is saying the same thing here. Look, if you're innocent, not, you're not going to be guilty. Don't sweat it. But there's a problem. You're, you're not innocent. You're all guilty. And therefore, the guilty sentence is going to be passed off on you. And guess what that guilty sentence is? Perishing and judgment. If you, didn't, if you sinned without the law, you're going to perish. If you sin under the law, you're going to be judged, which was another form of saying you're going to perish. And it's because it's not the hearers of the law who will be justified in his sight, but the doers of the law who will be, who will be justified. It's not the hearers who are righteous, but the doers who are justified. It's the innocent who get to walk away, being, de being declared not guilty. The problem is, is that in this courtroom, Everyone's guilty. And the point is that under that weight, under that sentence of guilt and guilty, mankind would cease to look to their own goodness and cease to look to their own righteousness to escape judgment. And they would look to, to Christ. See, the beautiful thing, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed and the righteousness of God is actually imputed to the one who comes to him by faith. We get the righteousness and the moral perfection and the obedience that Christ executed fully conferred to us. Because nobody can stand up under the weight and the guilt. If it's, look it, if it's the doers of the law who are going to be justified, no one's justified. Nobody. You can't come to him and say, like, this was the problem of the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this, 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 and this. Oh, I've done all that stuff for my youth. Okay, go sell all that you have. I can't. How about five out of ten? No, it doesn't work that way. God's standard is perfection, to be with him. Christ is the one who worked on our behalf, and we get the credit for his perfection. 
accredited to us. You stand in, in, in good standing and innocent position before God based solely upon the merits of another, contributing zero on your part. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you, are, if you were a Jew and you had the law. The question is, did you do it? It doesn't matter if you're a, a religious person. Did you do it? It doesn't matter if you're in church every Sunday and every Wednesday night and you're attending all the things and you're doing all the stuff and you're getting all the feels from all the things that you're doing. Have you done it perfectly and perpetually all the time? Because if you've fallen at one point, you're guilty. There's only one person all the time, every moment of every day, perfectly lived, not just in action, but in attitude and desire that was completely consistent with the will of the Father because the Father and the Son and the Spirit had this eternal um, covenant of redemption worked out between the three of them. The Son volunteered, as I heard earlier this week, said, I'll do it. And he does perfectly from beginning to end. And he continues to, 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 to intercede and to mediate perfectly on behalf of those who are clinging to Christ and trusting in salvation in him and him alone by faith. That's all I got. By faith and by faith alone. You don't under, we don't understand like the incredible blessing it is that Christ continues in his perfection to mediate on our behalf and intercede for us. Faithful and sympathetic high priest, always interceding for, for you, for me, standing in the place, receiving, he had received fully the fury and the wrath of God poured out on him. And in that way, we can be justified. The only way any of us are getting out of this courtroom declared not guilty is if we come to the judge by faith and by faith alone and claim the righteousness of another, the innocence of another on our behalf. And that's where the gospel and the work of Christ really breaks into our hopelessness. What God demands, he provides in Christ. The sinless one stands in the place of the sinner. And those who believe are justified by works, but by the works of Christ. And by faith in what it is that he's done, we are declared innocent. Not guilty. Read this earlier this week, talking about Christ. In this attitude, he is the victor over sin. Not merely by overcoming the gulf between the righteous and sinners, but by forgiving sin and thus overcoming the gulf between God and sinners and establishing a new fellowship 
with God by drawing sinners into fellowship with himself. Like you don't just have, this is, you don't just have one who came and took your place and paid the debt. Certainly that's true. But you have one that came and stood in your place, paid the debt, and then draws you into continual fellowship with him. Like the sinless one continues to have fellowship with the sinner. That sh- that, that there's no world in which that should be true. But yet it's the world that the Christian lives in every single day. Like unless you've reached sinlessness and perfection in this life, It is a sheer act of mercy and grace that the sinless one has fellowship with you, a sinner, and with me. And if you're at all, if you're, if you're at all aware, if, you're, if your eyes at are all, at are all opened, and you're aware of your own depravity and your own sinlessness, and you're really honest with yourself, you would confess, oh, what a wonderful Savior it is that we have. I mean, it's one thing, yes, for him to pay the debt. Amen. Thank you. But it's another thing for him to continue to draw me into fellowship. Right? I'm, I'm prone to wandering, prone to leaving the God that I love. And, and it's only by his grace and mercy that he continues to bring me back in and draw me back in and assure me that I will reach the celestial city come that day. I didn't start the journey on my own. I don't finish the journey on my own. Like, he begins it, he sustains it, he finishes it. It's all, I mean, it's all him. It's all Christ. The whole Bible is pointing us towards the one who has eternally agreed to do what we desperately need in redemption over our sin and transgression. Like, the depth and the wickedness and the blackness of our sin must be comprehended in order for us to, I think, fully be able to recognize and enjoy what it is that Christ has done. Like, if you see yourself as a pretty good person, and what Jesus did for you was, that's cool, thank you for that, you don't, you don't get it then you, you just got a little Jesus, a little Savior, because all he's done is just paid a little bit of your debt for you. But when you see, when you understand biblically that your debt is, there's no, there's not, there's no bottom to that pit. When you see your sin like that and all of its ugliness and depravity and the darkness of it, then the work of Christ it becomes the most valuable, the most wonderful gift and treasure that you can ever have. And, and then why would I not want to read the book that continues to remind me and tell me about the Christ and his love that he has for me, a, a, a rebellious sinner? I don't know if you know this, but I'm still rebellious in nature. And I have an inkling that you guys are too. 
And yet Christ in his mercy and his goodness continues to come to the rebellious and draw them to himself. What a wonderful Savior we serve and that we have. Think about this in a couple practical ways. The res- not just the responsibility, but the privilege that we have in worship. Having all of our lives being a living sacrifice, a reasonable service to him. An expression of worship. Living, living my life with the clear recognition, enjoyment, and embracing of what I have in Christ and that practically fueling and feeding everything that I do and say and think. Worship God with all that I have at all times and in all ways. Man, that like, I would love it if that's what my life looked like. And I, we move closer to that. You move closer to that. The more often you, you train yourself to look upon the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Contemplating and acquiring and fighting for a vision, a biblical vision and picture of the glory of God is the most practical thing you can do in your life. It will begin to saturate your thinking and saturate your feeling and saturate your doing. You'll, you'll, you'll acquire a taste, a palate. It's like once you have, you know, you, you, you have a great steak, you're like, I don't, why would I go, I don't, wanna, I don't want a bad one ever again. Like once you acquire and you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, you would continue to want to have that. And, when, and, and the more that you acquire that, the, the more like Christ you become, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The glory of God changes us from one degree of glory to the next. Another practical implication I think of is the great grace that we have in, in repentance. You read Psalm 38 and Psalm 51, and you see, like you get a recognition and understanding of your sin, how, how dislocated your heart is. And then you see and you realize the grace of God that he offers to you and being able to repent, confess, repent, and come to him. What a great gift repentance is. Like, why do we run from it? Instead of seeing our sin and confessing it and repenting it and know that he washes us and cleanses us and embraces us and calls us his beloved children, sons and daughters, and then builds us up and sets us off our feet up again upon the rock and sends us out When we know that to be true about him, why do we, when it comes to our sin, we try and block him out and we try and protect it or we try and keep it from him or pretend like it's not a big deal. 
Like understanding the work of Christ and the sinfulness of sin should lead us and bring us to confess it and repent of it and see it as a wonderful gift of grace that God gives to us. Why do you think, why did David, why was he just all out of sorts when his eyes were open to his sin? Why did he drench his bed, his pillows, his couch with his tears? Because he was so broken. He loved the Lord so much, and yet he saw what he did in transgressing against the Lord. He couldn't believe that he had done such a thing to the one that he had loved so much and the one that had loved him so much, and then he saw that the love of the of the Father was still being extended to him, and he repents and confesses and comes and again receives the grace of God that's held out and available to him. Like, that's what the believer has every day available to us. And then also to rest. To be able to rest and be assured of the pardon that we have in him. The believer has the wonderful privilege and blessing of knowing that when I am faithless, he is faithful. And that's one of the things that we, you know, we take all of this into consideration when we partake of communion together. You know, we part, as we, you know, get ready to partake of communion, we always say that this is a time of worship because it is. It's a time of worship in which sometimes my worship means, Lord, I'm confessing to you and repenting of the sin and that I've been living in and holding on to in my life. It's a time of worship in which, in which I'm resting in the assurance of the pardon that I have by virtue of being in Christ. It's a time of worship in which I celebrate what it is that Christ has done for me. That he has met the demands that the sin in which I live and I partake in is covered and washed by the work of Christ on my behalf. That's reason to worship and to celebrate. And so if you are here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, as we partake of communion, that we do invite for you to, to partake of this time with us. But if you don't, to consider how do you... What do you if you don't know Christ by faith, I'm just going to tell you, you stand guilty before him. And the wages of sin is death, eternal punishment and separation from him for eternity. Consider, turn, the gospel demands a response. Come to him by faith today. See, the, the, these, em, these elements that we partake of, the bread and the juice, they represent the, the person and the work of Christ. See him hanging and languishing away on the tree. Not for his own sinfulness, but for yours and for mine and to pay the debt. So the elements are on the back tables. You can get those. Um, return back to your seat for a few moments of just personal prayer. And then we will partake of communion together here shortly.